KUAF is supported by its contributing listeners and by the Arkansas Podcast Collaborative, presenting Arcast Podcast Festival September 20th and 21st, where guests can hear from Arkansas podcasters as well as national experts, including the School of Podcasting and PRX, producers of shows like This American Life, Snap Judgment, and Reveal. More at ArkansasPodcasters.org. The Arkansas Natural Sky Association will host the Arkansas Dark Sky Festival September 14th through the 16th on Bear Creek south of the Buffalo National River, Arkansas's only international dark sky park. There will be a constellation tour, viewing of the Milky Way, and Arkansas-born Dr. Amber Strawn will share her research using the James Webb Space Telescope. Information at darkskyarkansas.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, August 18th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellums. With me to start our Friday edition of the program is Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. Michael, August used to be a very slow month when it came to news. That is no longer the case, is it? No, it's not even been a slow summer. Typically, summers are slow, and um, it's I I don't know who decided that it wasn't going to be slow this year, but it it has not been. Part of the reason it hasn't been slow is because there have been some stories that keep on going. I'm thinking of (laughs) the Fort Smith Public Schools Peak Innovation Center, which you and I have talked about how valuable that can be to the community, but there have been flooding problems. And there, last I checked, there was a call for an investigation, a separate investigation independent into possible flaws with the construction. Where are we with that? Well, we uh, are kind of nowhere. We're all back on a plan B. Um, they put that this request for qual- uh, request for qualification, and they put it out to what they normally do. There's several, uh, they put it on the district website, and there's another place they, there's several places they commonly advertise these things. Well, they got zero response. Dale, our reporter, talked to Dalton person. He's school board president. His take was that they either did a poor job advertising, which he doesn't think is the case, or this is such a unique request because it's the request is made on behalf of the school board to investigate all parties involved, including the administration school and administration staff. So it's kind of a unique type protocol. Um, and so Dalton thinks that maybe that's part of it. So their plan B is he's going to work with a person within the school district and they're going to try to just search out, just individually go out and search out some possible firms, talk to them, and see if they're interested. So, again, we're kind of at a plan B, and I should back up a little bit. This all got started, uh, this Peak Center, the Peak Innovation Center, again, this regional workforce education facility has flooded three times since it's opened. And, you know, there is there are some issues going on. There was not, based on our reporting, there was not um, appropriate or adequate water analysis, water study done before construction began. And there's just some issues about what kind of materials were used. Um, was it the right use? You know, who made decisions on what to use, who didn't make those decisions. So, you know, it's a more than $20 million facility and they need to figure out. Uh, and there's a separate look. They're figuring out why it's flooding. They're trying to fix it. But uh, I think there's enough of um, um there's just enough consternation, both of the school board and the community. They kind of wanted to figure this out, why this is all a problem to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, and there's there's an interesting um, sort of 
you know, uh, request in this in that be thorough, but also be done in three months. Yeah, be be done in ninety days. I, you know, I don't. I am ignorant of the type of investigation this would require. Obviously, we've never reported on anything like this, and I, I doubt there are a few media outlets in Arkansas that have. But so I don't know. If, I don't know if ninety days is enough, or, or but so so I don't know. But maybe that's it, and they may have to pony up some more money. I, they the money has not been. They've not set a budget for it because they said they were going to, whenever they found the firm that was willing to do it, then they'd have to negotiate the prize. So we don't know that either. All right. We have uh, numbers of employments at Fort Smith Regional Airport uh, so far this year down a little bit. I guess that's not too much of a surprise because we know there's fewer flights than there were before the pandemic. What do we make from these new numbers? Yeah. So I, I talked to, um, or I, I should say I had an email exchange with um, airport director, Michael Griffin, who um, I should note is always uh, amenable to talk. I wish more directors of public facilities were as open as him. But anyway, yeah, he said, you know, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. American airlines brought in this much larger, nicer, more, you know, a, a jet a regional jet. That's, that's um, that customers like passengers like more, it's seventy five seat jet and they took out the fifty something seat jet. But when they did that, they reduced the number of flights. And so it did reduce even though they you have larger a larger jet, you've reduced the the amount of capacity, the total amount of seats that fly in and out every day. And remember two or three years ago, Delta took their single flight out, just stopped that flight. So American's the only airline servicing Fort Smith. So Director Griffin is kind of caught in what I call maybe a vicious cycle. That may not be the best way to describe it because, you know, there would be more traffic out of air, out of the airport if you had more flights, but to prove to the airline that they need to bring more flights, you have to prove that there's more traffic. Uh And so, you know, it's, it's that chicken and an egg kind of thing, I guess. I, again, I do not envy the job that Mr. Griffin and others, the airport are doing to try to convince American and other airlines to add service to Fort Smith. But between January and July, the number of flights were down 2.7% compared to the same period in 2022. Now, the July numbers popped up. Griffin is kind of optimistic that maybe that's the beginning of a trend. We'll see. But the July numbers out of Fort Smith were up 8%. Uh, And by comparison, the U.S. Department of Transportation reported that all domestic passenger flights traffic was up 4% in July. So maybe that is a good sign for Fort Smith, but um, the airline, the airport's recovering. Obviously the traffic took a big hit during COVID and it's slowly grown back. They had just under 62,000 employments last year. That was up 30%. So they've, they've been, they've been building, but um, I, frankly, I was surprised to see that decline in, in January, between January and July, but, Griffin says it's primarily just the flight frequency. So, you know, if you're trying to fly out and it's already booked, and he said those flights are often booked too. Mm. If you're trying to get in and it's booked and there's no other flights, you got to fly out somewhere else. You know, it was, I think maybe a year ago or so, you and I talked about a possible grant or some federal money to help lobby for other flights. I don't think there, and, and, and you said at the time that was no guarantee. Has there been any sort of other traffic on that? No, there's. St- I mean, they are still 
uh, involved in using that grant. In fact, when um, uh, I was t- emailing back and forth and texting back and forth with Mr. Griffin, he was out uh, out of town making visits, and I'm assuming mm. um, that maybe that was it. But no, they're you know they they've they've got this consulting company who has a presentation about their market and um, how many flights they could support if they bring in more. Um, more jets. So, yeah, I, he did not have an update on that when I talked to him last. All right. Finally, there's uh, about $75,000 that the Fort Smith Board of Directors is approving to study whether a multi-purpose sports stadium that could include baseball and maybe some other sports soccer could be on the riverfront, maybe someday joining the Marshalls Museum and these other amenities that are growing. We're in the very early stages of this, Correct. Correct, um, but it's kind of a building on the momentum um, thing. Yeah, so it's 70, 75000 from the city. Now, the Westfall family, who owns that the property, who owns most of the property, kind of between um, Harry E. Kelly Park and downtown Fort Smith and down to the RV Park, they're going to donate. They're also going to pitch in seventy five. So it'll be $150,000 total funding uh, for the study. It's a group of Mammoth Sports Construction out of Kansas City. They're going to work with National Sports Services also. National Sports Services has already been working with the city. Um, but, you know, it's kind of – I think there's um, kind of an uh, attitude of you know, striking, you know, while the iron's hot. You've know, you got the Riverfront Park, Greg Smith River Trail. Of course, the, the Marshalls Museum opened recently. The Community School for the Arts, um, if you haven't been to the Riverfront – that's coming out of the ground and looking very nice. That's going to be open later this year. Um, this RV park, which when they told me it was an RV resort park, I thought they were being silly. But if you go look at it, it yeah. is a nice facility. Um, the Fort Kids Children's Museum that just announced that they're going to be down there. And so the Westfall family, Benny Westfall and the Westfall family have set aside um, not not an entire 30 acres, but they have 30 acres Um there and possibly 15 could be used for this what they're calling just a basic stadium and parking um they've talked about baseball they've talked about other sports a multi-use stadium so maybe for even concerts i don't know i know that there have been in the past um efforts by folks to bring a baseball team a minor league baseball team to town and there was a time I was very skeptical about that, but I've learned in recent years, and I don't have to tell you, being a baseball fan, <laughs> being a baseball fan you are, that there's a wide variety of minor league teams. Oh, there are independent teams, uh, teams owned by major yeah. league clubs, all sorts, yeah. Yeah, and some are, some are based in markets smaller than Fort Smith. So I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know whether um, a baseball team or any other type of team uh, could you know financially make it? So we'll see if this study provides some clarity on that. But just you know something else to keep that moment, momentum rolling on in, on downtown on the, along the riverfront. It could sit there vacant for decades, and it, then it's like bam, all of a sudden everything's coming out of the ground. So it's 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 not it's nice, and it'll be interesting to see what the study tells us. We'll f- keep following that, of course, like we're following the other stories. You can follow all of these stories at talkbusiness.net. Michael, enjoy the somewhat cooler weather this weekend, and I'll talk to you next Friday. All right. Thank you, sir. Ever been watching a ball game and think, wait, that pitcher, I remember when he was my teacher. 
might happen to students of Alan Winans now that he's been to the bigs. The grind that we have to go through, like the, the sacrifices we have to make for everybody across the board, if you get a chance to make it through that threshold, it's, it's pretty special. From the classroom to the pitcher's mound and all the other news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition with Scott Simon, tomorrow morning from 7 until 9 on 91.3 KUAF. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF. And later this hour on Ozarks, the standard for managing pain from head injuries has typically been opioids. But one researcher at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is looking at a solution that isn't a pill or an IV drip at all. A lot of people don't like taking medications. They don't like the side effects of medications. They want to take as few medications as possible. And if you could do something using a small non-invasive device, so some people like that idea of a controllable thing that doesn't require swallowing you know, any kind of pill or, you know, putting something under your tongue or smoking anything and having anything in your body per se. That's in about six minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. Do you like daily word puzzles that feature color-based hints? If you do, you're in luck. Introducing the KUAF Newsword, a daily word puzzle that tests your Ozarks at Large listening skills. Just go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start puzzling. Happy thinking. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks so much for being with us on this Friday. Last Friday, the Arkansas Department of Education decided they would no longer recognize AP African American Studies for course credit in the state. Now, all six schools in Arkansas that had planned to offer AP African American Studies say they will continue to do so this year. Education Secretary Jacob Oliva offered several reasons to explain the decision over the past week. All of those reasons have been met with some level of pushback. One concern was he said he could not confirm with colleges and universities what college course would be the equivalent course to AP African American Studies. More than 200 schools, including the University of Arkansas, have signed on to accept credit. Another was that the pilot program did not offer teachers a course audit opportunity required by the state. The college board, who administers AP courses, disputes that claim and says those audits have already been completed. The Department of Education released a statement on Monday saying, quote, the department encourages the teaching of all American history and supports rigorous courses not based on opinions or indoctrination. Ozarks at Large asked for specific examples of the coursework that the department deemed based on opinion or indoctrination, but we have not had any examples submitted to us. Then Wednesday, the department will release a new statement saying until it's determined whether it violates state law and teaches or trains teachers in CRT and indoctrination, the state will not move forward. Ozarks at Large again reached out to clarify what the department means by move forward, but we have not heard back. Bella Vista city officials continue to examine how to control short-term rentals after an ordinance recently approved by the city council had to be repealed last month under court order. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich has this report. Bella Vista's first-ever short-term rental code approved late last year required site inspections, proof of property insurance, as well as water and sewer hookups for certain rentals on septic systems. Short-term rentals include homes and apartments rented to guests for no more than 30 days. A group of short-term rental business owners sued the city, claiming the ordinance was too strict and violated their rights to control private property City Council has since approved a second, much weaker code, which is expected to also face court challenge. 
Bella Vista population 30,000 counts more than 550 short-term rentals advertising online. Of those, only half are operating with a city permit. By comparison, Fayetteville, with triple the population, counts around 480 licensed short-term rentals. Bella Vista City Council member Doug Fowler says officials are fielding a rising number of nuisance complaints from neighbors living near certain short-term rentals. Noise, it could be parking, it could be trash, and then, you know, of course, just over-occupancy, period. Another concern is impaired water quality, with nearly 80% of Bella Vista's housing on septic systems. State law limits occupancy in homes with septic systems to two people per bedroom, but the new ordinance allows up to three in short-term rental bedrooms. Fowler says the state health department has approved this change. And we passed the new ordinance to require short-term rental owners. They have to register their properties with the city. And there's a fee associated with that, $150 for a home, $50 for owner-occupied. Permit fees must be renewed annually. First offense violators subject to due process are fined $500. Second offenses cost up to $1,000. A third offense will lead to both a steep fine and a permit revocation for one year. The new ordinance also limits the number of short-term rental units in Bella Vista to 600, not including owner-occupied accommodations. But we did not have any type of ordinance here in the past. And what's happened is because we didn't have an ordinance, we have had short-term rental owners, whether it be individuals or whether it be LLC or whatever, that have come in and basically taken advantage of our city not enacting an ordinance. Plaintiffs are expected to challenge the revised ordinance, Fowler says. The Arkansas General Assembly attempted to pass legislation earlier this year to deregulate all short-term rental ordinances across the state, but failed to do so. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. And six different Razorbacks found the net last night as Arkansas opened its soccer season with a 6-0 win over Arkansas State. Next match set for next Thursday night against Oregon, again in Fayetteville. This is Ozarks at Large. The National Football League and its Players Union recently awarded more than a half million dollars to the American Society for Pain and Neuroscience to study non-opioid alternatives for treating traumatic head injuries. The executive board president of ASPN is Dr. Erica Peterson, a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. She recently spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore over Zoom, and she says one of the challenges of treating pain is that you cannot see pain like you can see a broken limb. People can be smiling and laughing and tell you that they feel like their arm is being sawed off level of pain, but they know also that if they stop enjoying their day and trying to do the things that get done, that the laundry's not going to get done. Their kids aren't going to make it to school. They're not going to have a job. And so they have to figure out a way to make it through. Can you give me a bit of context of how this relationship formed between UAMS and the NFL for this uh, for this research? Yeah, so, so this is a really interesting opportunity because I am currently the president of the American Society of Pain and Neurosciences. And so we have uh, 
been very interested in innovating in the fields of chronic pain care and also as a neurosurgeon, very interested in what we can do to innovate in the neurosciences as well. And so one of the things that we wanted to do within the society, which is called ASPN, is figure out how we could try to impact the large number of patients, particularly those who have some medical conditions that aren't often addressed. The NFL put out a call for possible research uh, areas about two years ago, and we thought this was a wonderful opportunity as the society to potentially have a way of reaching people who have post-traumatic headache. Think about all the people who have concussions, and that might be from a car accident or from sports um, or some other sort of trauma. And a lot of those people will have chronic headaches for years after having had that injury. And there's not much to do with it besides medications, and even those don't work very well. This is particularly an issue when you think about people who come back, say, from a military situation as well. And and so when the NFL said, could we potentially propose a research project, the ASPN Society put forward a proposal to try to study new ways of how we can address post-traumatic headache syndromes, post-concussion headache, for not just people who will play sports, but also all those other populations, whether it's from trauma, from military injury, and how we can learn and potentially impact people who may not otherwise have had great pain control. The exciting part is that we get to help administer the study here at UAMS and my partner, um, Dr. Jonathan Gorey, who's our director of interventional pain is part of our steering committee. Um, we're gonna have 10 different centers in the US all within about 50 miles of NFL franchises that are going to be recruiting centers to actually do the research study. But, um, but we get to be the leadership people. We're not close enough to an NFL team to actually be the ones testing it out in person, unfortunately, but, um, but we've conceived and led it from this side of it. For anyone who has followed the NFL over the last decade or so knows that the NFL hasn't necessarily had a great reputation when it comes to to care for head injuries or brain injuries for their players. You know, is this something where when you hear that the NFL is looking for folks to reach out to and professionals and experts in this world, does it give you a little bit of confidence that uh, that they're taking it a little more seriously? Absolutely. The NFL first started with a lot of return to play guidelines, looking at how we safely evaluate players on the sidelines after a concussion or other injury. And we've had several fairly dramatic instances where we've seen player injuries on live TV during games. And now what's been instituted, and a lot of that was through support of neurosurgeons, um, is a much safer way. And that's been translated also into how we as neurosurgeons, both me and my colleagues here at US. AMS, as well as our pediatric neurosurgery co colleagues who are faculty at um, Arkansas Children's Hospital, take care of return to play for our junior athletes, those people who are playing high school sports, for example. And so we've learned a lot in the piece about concussion, but the NFL Players Association has also said we have a lot of patients who, who are now former players who are now patients with chronic pain, and we need to do something there to try to take care of those folks longer term. So it's been very encouraging to see the NFL try to encourage research in these areas to address not just what happens 
on the playing field and right after, but also what happens to athletes over time with the repetitive injury that comes with doing high yield, um, high impact sports. There's a lot of jargon around head injuries. Can we spend just a moment defining some terms? I'm thinking like defining what a concussion is and, and kind of what separates something from a concussion to post-traumatic headache and even say CTE. That's a term we've heard a lot, especially with former NFL players. Yeah, so a concussion is any kind of mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, you might hear people say they got their bell rung, for example, where people may be stunned for a moment or two, um, or they may even have a small period where they are unconscious and then regain consciousness. But th when that sort of impact happens, they should be watched closely and have a medical evaluation to be sure that it's not a serious brain injury. And that's where the return to play guidelines are very important. And a lot of sports doctors, as well as neurosurgeons, are able to support that piece of it. When people have had multiple brain injuries from those sorts of impacts, then that's when you worry about people having the long-term effects of having trauma-related injury, and hence post-traumatic headache syndromes. And then ultimately, when you talk about CTE, this is something, again, that with the additive repetitive injury that comes from these sorts of forces over time, you get chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a, a basically a brain injury pattern related to long-term damage to the brain coming from this repetitive injury. So the, the idea of this research is to focus on non-opioid concussion treatments, and the two that are mentioned are CBD and non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation. What do we know about these treatments so far, and why choose these two specifically? Well, we wanted to look at areas where there was some early potential promising results. CBD, for example, has been used to treat seizure disorders. Um, and there's been some very good publications for some children who otherwise couldn't have been treated with seizures who respond well when they use these compounds. There are other people with chronic pain who seem to respond well when they use a CBD product also. So we wanted to look in a very controlled way at what this impact would be for patients who have a specific kind of post-trauma headache long-term. The other piece of this is to figure out what you can do that doesn't require anything that you have to ingest. So it's not a pharmaceutical. A lot of people don't like taking medications. They don't like the side effects of medications. They want to take as few medications as possible. And if you could do something using a small non-invasive device and what the non-invasive vagal nerve stimulator is, is a, a small little electrical box that uh, you hold up to your neck to deliver an impulse. And then after that impulse is delivered, you put it away and move on. And so some people like that idea of a controllable thing that doesn't require swallowing, you know, any kind of pill or, you know, putting something under your tongue or smoking anything and having anything in your body per se. And so it's nice to have a couple of different options that are not the standard prescription options that we've seen going forward. And so that's why we're looking at those, both of which have shown some promise to begin with. Opioid use and abuse is a huge concern nationwide. Uh, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, more than 80,000 people died from overdosing on opioids in 2021. It's the most recent data that I could find. How much do these sorts of statistics help frame your decision to find helpful and reliable alternatives to opioids for this sort of care? 
Excellent question, particularly in Arkansas. Arkansas, actually, the ratio of prescriptions used of opioids is more than one per person living in Arkansas. We have unfortunately seen a huge amount of opioid abuse, a huge amount of opioid prescribing in Arkansas. And there's a real downside to that that's not just related to dependency and death, but also related to the side effects that come long-term from taking medications. People say, well, I'll just take a little bit to keep things in check. But with that comes a lot of side effects and it also comes with things like rebound headache. And so you can actually make pain conditions worse by taking long-term opioids as part of that. So there's a major motivation to look away from that specific area towards things that are safer with a lower risk to the patients um, and to those who might get their hands on to those prescriptions by accident. Dr. Erica Peterson is a professor of neurosurgery and one of the leaders of a new study funded by the NFL to treat traumatic head injuries with non opioid alternatives. She spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore over Zoom. And if you'd like to share this or any other story or interview you hear on Ozarks at Large, it's easy to do. Just go to ozarksatlarge.com, find the story, and use the link associated with the story to share via email or social media. And we're back with another concert for the Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series sponsored by McDonald's. This concert is happening August 18th, this Friday at 8311 Rogers Avenue, Fort Smith, Arkansas, from noon to 2 p.m., featuring the amazing artist and fashion designer, Tylo May. You don't want to miss this. Get your tickets now at KUAF.com slash summer concerts. Again, KUAF.com slash summer concerts. We'll see you there. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens. With me on the phone is Becca Martin-Brown. She's at her Bella Vista office. She is the arts and entertainment editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, this Friday is either the end of the first school week for some students or the last Friday before classes begin for others. Do you remember going to school? I was about to ask you if it still makes your stomach hurt to think about it. Absolutely. Monday when I saw those first school buses of the year, <laughs> I just, I, uh, it, all those memories of trying to do my math homework on the bus before I got to first hour came flooding back. Tonight, the Eureka Springs Historical Museum is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Woodstock of the Ozarks. Yeah. The 1973 Ozark Mountain Folk Fair. And they have original event photography and historical objects and band memorabilia. They say 30,000 people came to that in the woods north of Eureka Springs. So the reception is 5 to 7 tonight for this exhibit at the Eureka Springs Historical Museum. The exhibit runs through the end of October. The reception's five bucks, but it includes some wine and maybe some hors d'oeuvres. And <laughs> Albert Stiles, who is one of the original photographers, will be there. I doubt there were hors d'oeuvres and wine available 50 years ago. I'm sure there were some things available 50 <laughs> years ago. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I'm not denying that. None of which we're gonna talk about on the air. Or you can go to Bentonville for Thor Northwest Arkansas, which is the balloon thing. Right, right. And Monica Hooper, who does our music for us, says, don't forget that there's not just balloons. Music starts at 5 o'clock today and runs through with Benjamin Del Shreve closing 
at 9. And then it starts at noon tomorrow with Thomas Sanders, followed by March to August, who I love, Dominic Roy, the Bad Jacksons, Alyssa Galvin, Chris Arcana, Jenna and the Soul Shakers, and the Hierarchies close out the evening at 8.30. And it's $15 in advance for adults, 25 I think, at the gate. SoarNWA.com. SoarNWA.com. I can remember that. Then I'm going to send you to the River Valley, but not till Thursday, so you can rest for a minute. Okay. The Fort Smith International Film Festival starts a day early on Thursday with two events. They're having a screening and music at the Fort Smith Museum of History on Thursday night. But they're also having a high school showcase at the King Opera House. I am so in love with this film. One of the films is called Indiana Jones and the Treasure of the Aztecs. And it was made by kids at the Oliver Springs Elementary School in Van Buren as fan fiction. Not only are the kids playing the parts, they got somebody who was a horseman, and they got somebody that owns a 1940s-era Jeep, and they did a horse chase for the end of the film. All right. And they got a cameo by Karen Allen. What? The Karen Allen from the first movie? That would be the one. They shot this in 11 days across the span of six months. So you can go to the King Opera House on Thursday night, and for a 10 buck suggested donation, you can see that film. You can see a film called Different Not Less by an 18-year-old named Alexandra Duran from Rogers who made a film about her own diagnosis of autism mm. when she was wow. 17. Wow. For 10 bucks, And then you can stick around in Fort Smith for the rest of the film festival that goes on starting Friday and runs like through after midnight on Saturday. You will not see me at the after party. And the happiest place in the Mid-South. I know you're talking about um, uh, Silver Dollar City. Because Silver Dollar City had a big announcement on Monday that they've been teasing people about all summer. They've been telling people all summer, ride the fire in the whole roller coaster. It's 50 years old. We're going to retire it. you got to come ride it. But that's not the whole story. Because? Because they're replacing fire in the hole with a new fire in the hole. So one roller coaster replaced with another, I imagine, scarier, bigger, more updated, technologically advanced roller coaster. Actually, probably more updated technologically, but they're keeping the same theme. Fire in the Hole is based on the mining village that was above Marvel Cave Mm -hmm. and based on a story of the bushwhackers coming in and setting fire to the mining village. And the premise of the storyline of the ride is that if you're a rider, you have to help fight the fire, hence Fire in the Hole. Mm -hmm. And it's not a terribly scary roast coaster, but it is indoors, which was pretty groundbreaking in 1972 or three, whenever it opened. Well, there still still aren't that many completely indoor roller coasters, are there? No. And so they're building the new one indoors. It's going to have three drops, a splash landing, some new updated spatial effects for the show scenes. The old version is open through the end of the year. And they're talking about ways to celebrate the last few weeks of it. And check out what's up on Sunday because there's yet more film festival stuff, including a new Hollywood connection they have that they hope will help filmmakers sell films. And, of course, all our calendars. And 
what the crazy people from the Theater Collective of Northwest Arkansas are doing now. All right. And you can find What's Up uh, Sunday in the physical and digital editions of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And on the app. And on the app. You can find it everywhere. And on the app. We're everywhere. <laughs> Becca Martin-Brown is the arts and entertainment editor for the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Thank you, Becca. Thank you, Kyle. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals 2023 season continues at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale. The latest news and information available online at nwanaturals.com. Still come on this Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. Do you have it in you for another superhero movie? Blue Beetle is out this weekend, and our critic Courtney Lanning says, eh, not so bad. Our full conversation about the new movie coming up. KUAF works with CARS, that's Charitable Adult Rides and Services, on car donations to the station. CARS oversees the pickup, the auction, and distribution of the donation to KUAF and sends a tax receipt to you. All you need to do is call 855-500-7433. That's 855-500-RIDE. Or you can go to careasy.org to start the process. It's the Community Spotlight Week in Review here on Ozarks at Large. I'm Pete Hartman. This week we heard about art walks, bird talks, and allergy awareness. We start with an event taking place this Sunday at Hobbs State Park Conservation Area. Joe Neal, a nationally recognized birding expert, has been monitoring and studying the different birds and pollinators that have been visiting a stand of Ozark chinkapin trees. Steve Churchill from Hobbs sent me a photograph of a bird that he had seen in a grove of Ozark chinkapins. He photographed a yellow-throated warbler in that grove of trees, and so he asked if I would come and look at the grove and find out what else I could find out about uh, the birds there. And the overall idea was just to see the bird associations around that grove of trees, and then also the pollinators that are actually coming to the flowers on the Ozark chinkapin. So that's what I did, and this will be a report on that particular day with some of the birds and some of the pollinators that I was able to photograph. Obviously, you're still active in uh, birds and birding. How often do you get out a lot? I get out a lot. I've stayed healthy enough to uh, go out regularly, and I get up to Hobbs quite a bit. It's a great, you know, 14,000 acres. It is the state's largest state park, and so it's a great place to go birding. I'm also very interested in all kinds of pollinators, beetles, butterflies, wasps, all kinds of flies. And so the chance to go into this grove of trees that they're growing, uh, Ozark chinkapins, was pretty exciting. Joe Neal will give that free community presentation this Sunday, beginning at 2 p.m. at Hobbs State Park. For more, ArkansasStateParks.gov. Coming up in September, Downtown Springdale will expand its Art Walk event to include three days of events this year, including some live performances. Here's Jill Dabbs with Downtown Springdale. So we started the Art Walk series a couple of years ago with support from Baldwin and Shell to really just highlight local artists and give um, people a reason to come downtown and, and celebrate these local artists, see the work that they have, and visit downtown at the same time. And we've had incredible success. We're really starting to attract some of the best artists from across the region 
into the downtown Springdale Art Walk. And uh, Rachel McClintock has been the chair of this event since it started. And uh, she has an incredible vision for what this is going to grow into and is growing into. And we've expanded it this year uh, with the success we've had in the past into a three-day event, Mm -hmm. uh, not only with visual arts, but now we have performing arts that are going to be added to the event this year. So we're very excited about it. Uh, Most of the artists are hosted by other businesses or venues, and uh, they display their art in those venues. This year, we're going to kick off the Art Walk. It is a free event. Uh, but we're kicking off the art walk with an art crawl on okay. Thursday evening. And uh, for just $5, you can go to some of the featured um, spaces on the art walk and enjoy a glass of wine or some other beverages and snacks and, and stroll throughout the outdoor dining district. And one thing I'd like to really point out that to look forward to is there's going to be a comedy show because comedy is art. And there oh, are some incredible definitely. comedians from the region Kenneth Crabgrass, Joe Means, Sean Coppola, and the Frisco Kid are going to be doing a comedy show on Thursday, one at four and one at eight. Okay. And tickets to the comedy show uh, also give you a free pass to that art crawl that I mentioned. So that's the night that we're kicking off the art crawl. It's going to be a lot of fun. Jill Dabbs with Downtown Springdale. For more on that now three-day art walk, downtownspringdale.org forward slash art walk. We wrap up this week's review with a revisit from K-12 Allergies. Remember, this local nonprofit works to promote food allergy awareness and to lessen the impact of food allergies, specifically for young children. Hey, Molly Gari visited with me in the Nancy Blair Operation Studio to talk about an allergy awareness walk that will take place on the U of A campus. So when I was younger, I experienced a lot of food allergies. It was tough to diagnose. In school, we didn't have a really big community with food allergies, so my parents struggled a lot while pinpointing my allergens, and they went through numerous physicians, um, support groups, and all the things. And what I realized that they were missing was that community. They couldn't find any support groups. They couldn't um, reach out to anybody because they didn't know anybody who had similar experiences. But just to know, oh, there are others and here's their story, that's got to mm-hmm. matter. Spreading awareness in my community about food allergies, about rising allergies like alpha-gal and all of these other things that are going on was really important to me and something that I wanted to share and especially empower other people with allergies to, to be outspoken about their allergies, to educate other people as well because I was scared too when I was younger and I didn't want anyone else to feel this way. You're working with the University of Arkansas Food Allergy Support Group, and you're doing an awareness walk. What's this going to be? A community food allergy awareness walk where we're going to have um, sponsors at our event that are um, local businesses that are allergy allergies, resources like local support groups that have been formed, things like K-12 Allergies, Alpha-Gal, and encouragers, and especially local allergy clinics too, like the Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Northwest Arkansas. It's located in Bentonville. They're all going to come together to support this food allergy community and especially educate. Then I know you're looking for uh, more table sponsors. Mm -hmm. Uh, How would uh, someone learn more about maybe doing that? Visit our social media. We're uh, at Kotov Allergies on Instagram and Facebook. We have information about reaching out to sponsor, promote their their company, their materials, and especially if they are a restaurant, how they accommodate food allergies. Hey, Molly Gari with K12 Allergies. To put on something like this, it truly does take a community. It seems like you've found those out there who can help and work with you. Yeah, I've been really lucky. 
If you'd like to be a sponsor, you've got some time. That event is September 30th. For more, just go to Facebook or Instagram and search K12 Allergies. That's K12 Allergies. Just some of the voices that you've heard this week during KUAF's Community Spotlight. I'm Pete Hartman. You can send me an email. That's Pete at KUAF.com. And remember, your voice matters. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens. With me on Zoom is Courtney Lanning. Courtney, welcome back to Ozarks at Large. Kyle, thanks for having me. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago on the program, another superhero movie. And if even I am beginning to wonder if there are too many, then you know there might be too many because I'll go see any superhero movie. But you say this one, not so bad. Yeah. I mean, if you, of all people, who was around for the introduction of Jay Garrickson and, gosh, uh, original Green Lantern, Alan, Alan Scott, yeah. If you were around for those guys in the golden age, when comics were first introduced, when they were pulled off of like woodblock printing, <laughs> then there might be too many, Kyle. I will say this. A young Kyle was waiting for this era of Hollywood for a long time. Uh, the, the latest one is a somewhat minor character, probably unknown to most people, named Blue Beetle. Yes. Um, I wasn't really sure what to make of Blue Beetle until the last act um it was it was fine throughout like you know when you're when you're a film critic and you're watching a movie sometimes it's hard not to sit there and think okay at this point in the movie i'm thinking about writing such and such in my review or oh i'm going to take note of that and make sure to mention that so it, these things run through your head uh, whether you're reviewing a movie or not it's mm-hmm. kind of an always on thing uh but the final act is where everything really came together for this movie um you, you get some really creative action sequences, uh, a good use of Motley Crue's Kickstart My Heart, and a decent decent film overall. All right. I, you know, I've seen only the trailer for this, and I think if someone is, you know, not a superhero aficionado, they see this and go, wait, that looks like something that was in Iron Man. That looks like something that was in Spider-Man. I mean, the preview can come off as sort of the same old thing, but what I'm hearing is it's not necessarily the same old thing. Right. So here's the thing. You, you're you're absolutely right. Um, when there are so many superhero movies out, as we've had them for quite literally decades now, but especially over the last decade and a half, um, it starts to seem like it's hard to get anything new. You go, like you said, oh, that we got a guy in a suit. Oh, we got a guy with, you know, mechanized weapons and this, that, and the other. Um but here's the thing, when it gets to this this final showdown, as every superhero movie seems to have, Blue Beetle, Bar- Blue Beetle Borrows, say that three times fast, Kyle, from some really wild choices for this big final fight. Um, you've got everything from WWE professional wrestling moves to Final Fantasy, giant swords, of all things. It's It's not just two guys punching each other in a dark room. And it should also be pointed out that the protagonist, the superhero in this film, is not, not just another white guy. The the diversity plays a huge factor in the casting for this movie. You have a Latino in the lead role. Um, I'm happy to say that he does a fantastic job as this superhero, coming off as a fresh face. He comes out um, and says, you know, hey, I'm here to, to chart my own path as a young superhero. 
uh, and he does great. You know, he's able to capture uh, the humanity of the character through tragic losses, and he's able to balance that with, you know, his chaos of finding these new abilities and wanting to hurt the people that have hurt his family, and he, he captures it all nicely. And, of course, one thing we've seen in the last decade of superhero movies, from Robert Redford to Olivia Colman, you know, get a big, serious star to be in the film. This one has Susan Sarandon. Sure. Um, and I'm sad to say that she's kind of uh, the weakest part of the movie. The dialogue for Blue Beetle can be a, a little corny at times, even for a superhero movie. Mm. And it seems like 90% of that cheesy dialogue comes from Susan Sarandon. She is just the most cliche, boring, you've seen this a thousand times villain before, evil corporate CEO wants to harvest some alien technology to sell militarized <laughs> right, weapons. Right. And every line she says, you know, we have to make sacrifices for the greater good. She says that like five times in the movie and you're like, God, she's, she's the weakest link mm -hmm. um, for sure. All right. So another question that people have with these movies, do I have to have seen 17 movies before this? Are there characters that cross over? Will I be confused? Not one bit. Mm. Um, for people who may or may not have been paying to attention to the entertainment news headlines over the last year, DC Studios is under new management. We've got James Gunn at the head now, who, of course, is well-known for introducing the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy to everybody and, uh, of course, directing the Suicide Squad, the new one, the good one. Um, he is now in charge of DC films, and this is sort of like a soft reboot for him. This is sort of the first movie that has his fingerprints of leadership on it. Um, and so you don't have to have seen Batman versus Superman and Wonder Woman or right. Suicide Squad. You don't have to have seen any of them because outside of a, a few mentions here and there, not really anything. What else is out this week? So also out this week uh, is a new movie called Strays. This is uh, an adult animated comedy from Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx. I was actually just looking at uh, another critic's review of it, and she called it uh, raunchy homeward bound. All right, what are you and I going to talk about next week? Uh, we will talk about a new video game adaptation coming out called Gran Turismo. Yeah, and this is uh, Orlando Bloom, David Harbour, folks like that. Yep, we've got Legolas and police chief hopper in this one and they're going to be racing some cars we'll see how it goes all right courtney as always thank you for your time thanks for having me in the background is vibraphonist nick mancini and i'm robert ginsburg your host for shades of jazz on this edition of the show i will feature an exclusive interview with nick he'll be performing august 26th at the walton art center with his jazz collective We'll also hear music from Anthony Branker and Mark Copeland and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz tonight at 10, then tomorrow from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3, one of our digital signals that you can listen to on your digital radio for absolutely free. You can also listen for free by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3 by going to KUAF.com. Monday on our show, the intersection of cyclists and farmers on our back roads. These roads they've known as theirs for so many years. All of a sudden, different group of people's out here enjoying them too. And a guy wearing overalls 
seeing a guy wearing tights going up and down the road is just another one of those aspects of being uncomfortable. Tractors, bicycles, and country roads. We discuss bike safety and rural roads. That's on Monday's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. Don't forget, there's also the Ozarks at Large podcast that lets you listen when you'd like. This weekend on the Vinyl Hour, more guitars, more tone. It's part two of the guitar series, looking at guitar players and the sounds they create through these instruments. That's coming up this Saturday at 5 on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Green Forest. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to our program this Friday included Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, Courtney Lanning, Matthew Moore, and Jacqueline Froelich. Additional production assistance today provided by Jack Travis and Anna Pope. Our theme is titled The First to Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean and our Director of Community Engagement, KUAF, is Jasper Logan. Today's show constructed inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. I will be back with you Sunday morning at 9 for Weekend Ozarks at Large. Before we end this week of daily editions, a big thank you to Welcome Health for including me in their uh, fundraiser, A Toast to Health, last week. It was um, a tribute to Dr. J.B. Hayes, a longtime dentist who's donated a lot of time to the community. He received the Jesse Bryant Service First Award at the Toast to Health event that was held at the Fayetteville Public Library last Friday. You can find out much more about Welcome Health by looking them up online. All right. We start a brand new week of daily editions Monday at noon and 7. Until then, have a safe weekend. I'm Kyle Kellums. The Momentary in Bentonville presents award-winning indie rock band Always with guest Julia Jacklin, Saturday, September 9th. This concert is part of The Momentary's Live on the Green series. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Rave Cultural Foundation presents their Fall Master Concert featuring the world-renowned musicians of the Divine Trio in the Great Hall at Crystal Bridges, Saturday, October 1st, 4 to 5.30 p.m. Tickets and information at ra-ve-culturalfoundation.org slash events.